You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. Alexei de Tobel observed that uh, democracy and socialism have nothing in common but one word, equality. But notice the difference. While democracy seeks equality in liberty, socialism seeks equality in restraint and servitude. Now, a requirement that companies disclose wage differentials between executives and workers was among the eye-catching measures unveiled by Trade, Industry and Competition Minister Ibrahim Patel recently. In his budget vote speech in the National Assembly, Minister Patel said a new bill containing amendments to the Companies Act will be finalised within the next few months to tackle what he termed the gross injustice of excessive pay. The legislation will also require disclosure of what executives earn and uh, they'll also deal with stronger governance of excessive director pay as well as uh, enhanced transparency of ownership and financial records and the move comes as Patel drives efforts to promote employee share ownership schemes and worker representation on company boards of directors and have so far been met with uh, incredulity from business. Now, Dr. Mark uh, Busen, chairman of uh, 21st Century Pay Solutions, joins us now along with David Holland of uh, Frackle Advisors, a former adjunct professor at the University of uh, Cape Town Business School and author of Beyond Earnings and Etienne Flock. Uh, South African Clothing and Textile Workers Union, SACTRU's uh, National Industrial Strategy Coordinator. Etienne, kick us off. Uh, you've been deeply involved in the engagements, uh, and some might say that the greatest inequality exists between those who are salaried and those who are unemployed. What is your concern with the levels of executive pay? What is the harm that you're seeking to remedy? So there are a few things um, that's happening currently, Michael, that, that we are very concerned about. You know, almost on a weekly basis, one reads about corporate governance failures. And so this is for us one of the first things that need to be addressed. The second one is that what we would describe as obscene um, pay packages to CEOs and that there's very little justification for it and very little accountability for these. But that in itself would have been a problem. But what's causing an even greater problem is, is the impact of this on society. The fact that we have such an unequal society, the fact that we see workers, working class communities um, um, who are uh, witnessing these, these very high pay packages being paid to, to CEOs and others. And the, the, the problems that it's causing in society, the, the, the split that it was causing in society, and, um, and, and, and these, uh, this makes that both these companies are unsustainable, but that you know, our society becomes unsustainable because of these, the, uh, this inequality. And I mean, you address several issues in that. Mark, um, I'll, I'll let you have a go first. Uh, when we have a look at the current levels of CEO remuneration, uh, is it sending uh, the wrong message? How much is enough? So thank you, Michael. And Etienne does make some good points. It's always the optics of something. And in the court of social uh, media and the court of social justice, uh, one's not there to defend oneself. So the way we set executive remuneration is based on the complexity of work and the size of the organization. Our organizations have grown into um, international and multinational. So 200 years ago where you only operated in your village or town, now, now organizations are operating across the globe with, with very complex legislation. So executive pay has grown at a faster rate. That means the pay gap has grown. So the um, organizations are not explaining well enough what, what executives do to earn um, telephone number long remuneration. Uh, 
uh, once they explain that they've created 10,000 jobs or done this or done that or done the next thing, it becomes a little bit better. So the justifications normally are required on the short-term incentive, which is uh, did the company perform, and the long-term incentive, which is normally the share price. So those have been going up exponentially well, and that's also what's created the gap. So the impact on society is there. I can see that. It, it can be divisive, and if I don't have a job and I see that, it, it comes across as unfair. The solution, though, is not to halve executive pay. The solution, I think, is to create more jobs and to lift the pay at the bottom. Let me pause there. And on that point, uh, I think PwC, from its 12th edition of Executive Directors uh, Practice and Remuneration Trains, looks at the Drucker principle of 20 to 1 or 25 to 1. Now, that actually applies in South Africa. If you're looking at uh, uh, semi-skilled uh, work earning 11,300 rand a month, then it uh, evens out at that ratio. If you take it down to the national minimum wage level, then it becomes much higher than the Drucker uh, principle of 20 or 25 to 1. But I want to come back, uh, Dave, to um, how we frame this, because uh, I mean, what are we talking about? Is this a salary ratio? Is it a, a metric? Is it a target? Is it a policy? How do you view this? Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's a red herring, and there's a number of reasons for it. You know, for, first of all, from a decision analysis point of view, what, what problem are we trying to solve? Now, for, for, for the government, you know, what preference does it have? What, what do we want? Well, the objective should be economic growth and investment and job creation. <clears throat> I don't understand how this correlates or ties into any of those objectives. So if really if the, the, the minister needs to think, and, and the government really needs to think more like great musicians, play fewer notes, you know, less can be more. A great musician plays with space and silence, cut the red tape, have smarter policies, and make sure that everything you do aligns with the objective of creating jobs and, and drawing more uh, investment. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, should CEOs get paid this much money or not? There's an international market. Okay, so if we look at companies with the same complexity and the same scale, um, I believe South African CEOs get a third of what US CEOs get and half of what UK CEOs get. Now, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take their side on some of these obscene bonus programs. I, I agree with, with Etienne and Mark completely. You know, should Woolworths, Ian Moore, been paid for that David Jones fiasco? Absolutely not. You know, so there's plenty of examples we can cite, but that's really poor corporate governance. So we're, we're solving the wrong problem by putting in these sorts of targets and metrics. Okay, so we need to get back to what 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 problem were we actually trying to solve, and mm. how does that align with 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 mm. gaining more investment, economic mm. growth, mm. and job creation? And I don't think this, mm. this, this aids that. In fact, it will uh, hurt those objectives. And coming back it, into the point of corporate governance, uh, and I think no one can quibble with the fact that we've seen uh, shockingly poor corporate governance lead to a range and raft of scandals on the JSE, destroying value 
for society, for shareholders, and uh, our ranking has just uh, plummeted. We used to have some of the best rankings according to the World Economic Forum on auditing and accounting standards. Those have gone down. But if you're solving for that problem, surely workers should be mobilizing avenues that they currently have at their disposal through pension funds, managers of those funds that invest in these companies to agitate for change, to vote at Remco uh, meetings, to, to use the existing framework that we have to improve corporate governance. You're right, Michael, but even where that's the case, there's very little consequence. So, so um, David raises the, the issue of Woolworths. Last year, at the end of the year, at their AGM, 82% of shareholders voted against their remuneration implementation report. But because of the current law, there was very little consequence. All that Woolworths would need to do is consult with those shareholders that voted against and return at the next AGM report on that. So currently on the table, the idea is how do we ensure that there's a binding vote and that there's some consequence? Because even if union pension funds vote against it, there won't be any consequence. So for us, you know, it's about changing the, 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 the current scenario, changing the current law that ensures or, or that, that has no real result into something where we can mm. uh, see results. And it may, for instance, be you know, that, that the members of the remuneration committee need to resign, or need to stand for re-election. But, but that's a crucial point because, you know, our unhappiness about, about CEO salaries is not just a trade union matter. It's a matter amongst many shareholders. You know, articles uh, 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 in, in business publications quote uh, investment companies, quote uh, corporate governance experts who complain about the, the, the packages that CEOs receive. So it's, it's not just a trade union matter. It's not mm. just a, a, mm. a, a, a matter that's confined to workers in Audacia. It's a matter for shareholders as well. And I agree there on that point, just to stay you, with you for a second longer. Does the issue of greater transparency solve for this problem, though? So, so David asks, you know, what is the intention here? Ultimately, if we intend to build a society and, and a country, we need to have more people who buy into it. If there is obscene salary packages for, for CEOs, there's very little chance of that happening. There's very little chance of us buying or creating a society where, where workers, together with middle class and CEOs, feel that they are part of, uh, part of the society. And so for us, these measures, together with measures such as worker directors on boards, with greater ownership in companies, with increased social dialogue, etc. This is the way that we create a society where more people buy into it. And uh, that is uh, certainly an outcome that uh, we can't quibble with. Uh, Mark, I want to come back to the specifics around a, a binding versus a non-binding vote. And it was quite interesting because we see on the other side of that, Astral recently addressed uh, uh, investor concerns, shareholder concerns around its executive remuneration, went back, remedied issues that uh, were raised at an AGM, uh, and then there was a, a vote against it again, without much explanation. What is your view on whether or not we should be making this vote binding uh, versus non-binding as it currently stands via the King Fall? Thank you, Michael, and uh, Etienne, thank you for those points as well. We've done a lot of research on uh, approximately 30 countries, and we um, are trying to examine how the binding versus non-binding vote has worked in about 30 countries. So the first point to make is that there was no clear trend. There was nothing that said um, the one worked better than the other. 
The second point is that um, if one is considering uh, a two-strike rule, which is the Australian model, where if you get two, two no votes, uh, the Remco has to resign, the Remuneration Committee members resign, and they're replaced with other board members. Um, it has an unintended consequence. And the unintended consequence is that your institutional investors and proxy advisors have stopped voting no, because all you're doing is you are replacing the A team with the B team or the D team. And um, they then behind the scenes go and consult and say what they want changed. So um, a lot of organizations prefer the non-binding vote, and um, there, there might be one or two companies, Etienne, I concede that that, that that don't really give a damn, but most do. I sit on a lot of Remco's, and we take it really, really seriously. I mean, we do go to the institutional investors and the shareholders, and we do ask them, what didn't you like? You, you can also get a no vote very, very easily. So I've got a no vote before, and, and I chair um, a Remco of a, a large listed company, and what happened was there were four institutional investors we had a share scheme that had two metrics, and two metrics couldn't solve for four different investment strategies. So we got a no vote. It doesn't mean that the, the scheme was bad or excessive. So there might be a compromise situation because um, I do share Etienne's dream of, of a united society. Um, one possible solution, I think, is that you normally at, a, at an AGM present uh, the remuneration policy and then you present the report, which is the absolute uh, random number. A compromise would be to have a binding vote on the policy and a non-binding advisory vote on the absolute number. And you can change the thresholds. At the moment, the threshold is 75%, but um, you could change that to, say, 50%. And, and that gives the institutional investors a lot more teeth. And uh, I, I, I always think that there's space for compromise, and um, that would be my suggestion for a compromise. And there's several issues here, Etienne. Um, the German model springs to mind when you think of co-determination, having worker representatives on boards. If you look at the way the Companies Act is drafted, it's currently quite onerous to be a director of a company where you can be personally liable. All of those responsibilities would now fall on the shoulders of union members. How do you envisage this playing out? So you know, we recognize that if um, workers are, are direct directors, that, that they would, you know, have the same responsibilities as other directors. And you will not find us shirking there. You will not find us hiding and trying to say, you know, that this is not what, what we would want to do. We realize that, that there's responsibilities that come with it. But for us, there are benefits, Michael, that, that um, you know, is, is extremely wide and, and deep for companies. So the first thing is that if you have um, workers as directors, you will have a chance for workers to provide their input and 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 their views into these these board meetings. You will have a chance for for board members to to hear uh, these views from workers, to hear a different perspective, to to often hear from people who've been in companies for a very long time, and and who have a deep deep sense of how these businesses work. The, the research from other countries also show that worker directors often bring a much longer term perspective than, than other directors, which of course we, we think is very beneficial for companies. 
and workers are so deeply entrenched in companies, are so deeply part of it that that you know they really look out for the for the well-being of companies. So you know we we think that there's a real benefit in in having mm. worker directors. And if you look, uh, David, just to bring you an overseas experience, does show that where there is some kind of co-determination and it's taken hold, uh, worker representatives do tend to be a little bit more pragmatic, less ideologically driven in their perceptions of the evil capitalist system. So that could be a potential positive outcome in an environment where we do see ideology taking hold and, and placing a lot of strain on the business environment. Yeah, well, I would hate to be the union representative sitting on a board. <laughs> it's, you're, you're, you're always the target. You're almost in a no-win situation um, because you're, you're typically going to be voted against by the other board members marginalized and if you agree with them you might be marginalized by the by the union you're supporting so you know i wouldn't want the job um i think the jury's out whether it works or not um i was just looking at a paper that's uh, that's been published um looking at norway and and how it works there and, and the conclusion of the paper was workers may indeed benefit from being employed in firms with worker representations. In other words, workers do tend to have a higher salary and less volatility in their pay when they're in a unionized workforce. So that's a positive for the workers. But it says, and this is what they found in the study, statistical study, they would not benefit from legislature mandatory work representation on corporate boards. So I don't think there's any, there's anecdotal evidence from Germany and places like that. Um, but I don't think there's any clear statistical evidence that this is going to work. And I'm going to go back to the, the corporate governance issue. This is really where it's at. So if fund managers are being lazy in their jobs or they're not being activist enough, I, I think that's where the unions, and I'm happy to work with them, should put as much pressure on the, the, the fund managers they're giving funds to, including the PIC, to become more activist. And what I do with my students when I teach is I always have them review uh, the KPIs for a company because those metrics influence behavior. So if you've got the wrong metrics in place, you're going to get the wrong behavior. EPS being enemy number one, you know, that should not be a remuneration metric for yeah. many reasons. Um, so I think the, the, the unions can actually, you know, God helps those who help themselves, as my mother used to say all the time, um, can really help themselves uh, by pushing the, the, the fund managers that manage their funds to review the metrics and also can, can review those metrics and bring them up like an activist investor like Chris Logan does. Yeah. You, it, that, that's fair game to bring up mm. where the metrics are wrong and mm. ask the boards to, to fix them. Uh, so we, just to, we, we, we need to fix the problem at the yeah. source. I, I want to balance this back to you, though. And listening to what David has to say, would uh, the unions be open to working with individuals like David with their experience and, and how to put the right ratios, you know, the right measures in place and metrics against which to measure management uh, and agitate via, via pension funds and, and, and the existing power that you do have? Absolutely, uh, Michael. You know, for for us in in this field, we think we can learn a lot from from many people who who have deep knowledge of of it. But you know, ultimately, what what are we trying to do? Not just to kind of agitate, and not just to to get our voice heard, but to actually make changes. 
and, and, and for us, you know, it means that we need to really look at the entire setup. So it may mean worker ownership. It may mean worker directors. And, and that is the way that, you know, in a combination of these kinds of tools that you'll make mm. a difference. Last week, we were speaking to, uh, to Norwegian unionists, David, and including a, a worker director on the Scania board, the, the truck manufacturer. And they were talking to us about the relationships that they've been able to build with the CEO and the other directors and how they've been able to provide their input and have created a much stronger company. So, and this is reflected if you look at the research on, on Norway, the, the inter interviews with the kind of CEOs and business elite says that 80% support this idea of worker directors mm. and they regard mm. it as an advantage for Norwegian businesses. Mm. So, so clearly this is not something that, you know, will just be imposed and that companies may just see as a, as a burden. The, the, the experience mm. in countries where, where this is in place shows a very positive impact on those businesses mm. as well. It, in, it also cuts both ways, right? And we recently had the, uh, the desire by the Employment and Labour Minister to impose a bit more democratic process in, in the way unions uh, ballot before striking. To have a secret ballot is a democratic procedural right. We had AMCU come out uh, and, and win a case uh, against that where, where the judge ruled that the employment minister was ultra vires in, in saying that this must happen. It merely should happen as a suggestion. Uh, but surely if, if unions want better corporate governance and want a say on the board, they should be uh, open to having secret ballots before strikes. There, there, there's a two-way street here. And also, would unions be open to having management sit on union governing structures? So, so I totally agree with you, Michael, that um, you know, we should have clean governance. Ultimately, that is something we push for in companies and push for in, 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 um, in government. So in our union, we have and have had for many years uh, secret ballots before a strike. That's part of our, our DNA, it's part of our makeup, and our members won't accept anything less. And ultimately, we then need to accept whatever result comes out of there as the way that will guide us on, on you know, mm. whether, whether there'll be industrial action or not. Mm. It's not something that we take up lightly, mm. but when we do, we ask our members, you know, what their views are. So absolutely, you know, we, we cannot uh, expect businesses to, to run, you know, a, a, a clean ship and then, and then we don't do the same. Uh, but that's your union, that's certainly not all unions. So if we're talking about legislation coming out of Parliament to apply to all companies, then surely that kind of procedural democratic process should apply to all unions. Would you be in favour of that? Yeah, we, we, we would be because, you know, this is something that, that we are used to and that we believe, you know, should be part of the, the, the makeup of unions. They should take into account what their members say on these things. Uh, Mark, just as we've got about three minutes to go, what do you make of co-determination as a strategy to bring workers, bring unions closer to, to management and improve labour relations in the country, which, uh, if they do improve, certainly could lead to a, a better operating environment. And that ultimately is what business is looking for. It's what we're all looking for to grow the economy. Thank you, Michael. So I would support and vote for anything that creates better labour relations and creates better governance and creates... Um, vibrant uh, economy and, and vibrant companies. So we need to explore all the opportunities there and um, co-determination is perhaps just one of them. I have presented to boards where um, in, in, in the state-owned entity space in South Africa where they had trade union or ex-trade union representatives. It definitely causes a completely different conversation and different dynamic and um, 
are we not hearing it loud enough just by talking to them under the current structures? Are we tone deaf? Uh, does something else need to happen before and goes the full uh, board membership um, um, route? I think that most trade unions, and I'm guessing, and I'm not speaking for Etienne here, um, might find themselves in a precarious situation. So I, I'm definitely uh, um, with Dave here that, 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 that you know, it's a double-edged sword to sit on that board, and um, we need a, a, a much higher level of maturity to uh, embrace that model fully. So um, it, it, it's 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 a bit of one and the other, I'm afraid to say. But mm. but uh, mm. I'm all for anything that'll help, mm. and uh, we need to think of all the options. Mm. Mm. Just lastly, Etienne, I, I didn't really get an answer on that last question about whether you'd be happy and comfortable as SACTRU. Let's just take SACTRU, you can't speak for all labor unions in the country, to have management sit on your governing structures. Mm, we, we, we'd not be comfortable with that, uh, Michael. The, the, the union is not a, 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 a place where management participates in, has no benefit for them. But a company, on the other hand, Michael, you know, no, nobody, not even a shareholder, buys into a company like a worker. Not even a shareholder is affected by the decisions of a company like a worker. So, so you know, these two things are not equal. Uh, a, a trade union doesn't, you know, is, is not put out there for, a manage, for, for management at all. Whereas a company, ultimately, its decisions, the way that, that you know, it's, uh, it, it acts has, has a tremendous influence on workers. It certainly does, uh, and uh, ultimately is beholden to the providers of risk capital, investors, shareholders, through which uh, worker pension funds have a significant uh, seat at the table. Fascinating debate. Thank you very much uh, to all of you. That was uh, Etienne Flock of Sactru, Dr. Mark Busen, Chairman of 21st Century Pay Solutions, uh, and uh, David Holland, author of Beyond Earnings.